Nostalgia is a mysterious thing. Clay Rutledge, a social physiologist and professor at the North Dakota State University, once wrote in the online journal Scientific American that, until the latter part of the 20th century, nostalgia was viewed as either a medical disease or a mental illness. Nostalgia has an impressive hold over us, though. As Rutledge continued, it's why... Old movie franchises are resurrected and rebooted. Songs and albums that represent the classics for any given generation are remastered and re-released. And old video games are given a high-definition facelift and resold. One can argue a case that Friends Reunited, an early and now largely forgotten social media platform, thrived because people longed to return to the past and have an affair with the one that got away. Well, maybe not entirely that last one. Why does nostalgia have this hold on us? Well, Rutledge's studies led him to discover that when nostalgia is induced in the lab, it puts people in a good mood. Nostalgia, compared to control conditions, increases self-esteem, as well as perceptions of meaning in life. So, basically, it's no longer a mental illness to look back with fondness, if not in anger. Which is fortunate, as otherwise I've got 175 episodes of a show that is basically about me exploring my mental illness. I don't think this is a new thing. I remember the generation above me saying they don't make them like that anymore when referring to an old film, or it's not as good as it used to be about a long-running television show. Nostalgia for the past arguably helped kill Doctor Who in 1989, when, ironically, it was just getting good again. There was an entire generation of people whining about how George Lucas raped their childhood with the release of the Star Wars prequels, a remarkably hyperbolic and stupid thing to say about a fucking movie. Ironically, again, the prequels are now looked on with fondness, and the Star Wars sequels are awful and should be decanonized. I don't recall original Star Trek fans asking for Spock's brain, or and the children should lead to be remade more in line with the viewer's taste, and they are objectively awful. It's not a new thing, though, to whine about now and idolize the past. According to TVTropes.com, philosopher Stendhal, born 1783, died 1842, felt everything went downhill after the fall of Napoleon. Others feel the world has been going to hell since the death of Marcus Aurelius in 180 AD. Hesiod insisted things have been going wrong at least since the invention of iron. Even ancient Sumer has clay tablets dating to around 2500 BC with similar complaints. TV and film have embraced the nostalgia. Once upon a time in Hollywood lets Quentin Tarantino rewrite the 60s so that the Manson family not only don't kill Sharon Tate, but are themselves killed brutally and unmercifully. This is after Tarantino shot Hitler in the face in his movie Inglorious Bastards. Rewriting history like this, i.e. making it how you would like it to have been rather than how it was, is rare. Alternative history fiction like The Man in the High Castle or Apple TV's For All Mankind are the kinds of shows that don't really catch on with the general public. Largely because a lot of people don't want to think about what would happen if bad shit had happened, ignoring that most of history is literally bad as shit happens. For a while, movies and films celebrated World War II, looking at it through rose-tinted glasses, as if it were a fun romp. But the series Foil's War refused to look at the war through nostalgia goggles and showed how demoralising World War II actually was if you lived through it. 
This oversimplification of the war is probably why I'm not a fan of something as simple as putting superheroes in World War II, something I personally find objectionable at best and insensitive at worst. Of course, film is where the nostalgia factor is at its highest. Star Wars isn't going anywhere anytime soon, thanks to Disney's buyout, something which has ensured that George Lucas's nine, or twelve, film saga will now run ad infinitum. Star Trek may one day get another film, after the hit rate of the J.J. Abrams movies went quite as high as Paramount would have wanted, and Warner Brothers continue to mine our love of the 60s Batman TV show by making films where Batman says fuck. Producers continue to try and squeeze more juice out of properties like Battlestar Galactica and V, whilst ignoring stuff that is primed for a reimagining, like Space 1999, Book Rogers, or Flash Gordon. Only the Mission Impossible series continues to go from strength to strength, after failed reboots for The Lone Ranger, The Man from Uncle, and The A-Team. I always think if you're gonna reboot something, reboot something that was good but forgotten, like Department S, which I mentioned last week, or reboot something that had an excellent central idea or premise, but wasn't really very good when you look at it, honestly. Like, say, Logan's Run. Of course, to live constantly in a nostalgic haze, chomping on munchies and gazing blearily at reruns of the Brady Bunch can ultimately lead to stagnation. You kind of have to find new material to connect with, lest you become completely out of touch and obsolete with what's new and exciting. And so, despite me constantly looking backwards, there are good new genre shows on the air. So, to stop the endless look at old things, fun though they may be, let's have a look at some newer stuff, currently erring across the many and varied platforms now available to us. First up is a bizarre and unusual choice, in so much if you told me that I'd be enjoying this show this year, I'd have laughed at you. The show is... Pandora. Pandora is a cheapy science fiction melodrama from writer Mark A. Altman, shot in Bulgaria and airing on the Sci-Fi Channel. Originally, it was 90210 in space, with hot young actors attending Earth Space Training Academy. Altman is a great raconteur, and I very much enjoy his podcast and indeed his pop culture writings, which I've followed since his days on Starlog and Cine Fantastique, before his own magazine, Sci-Fi Universe, which was published by, of all people, Larry Flint. After that, he produced a few TV shows and wrote some books and developed Pandora. The first season... well, the first season wasn't very good... It was a tad cheesy, it betrayed its budget in many places, and it felt like a typical teen-orientated WB show that had inadvertently ended up on the sci-fi channel. Acting was wooden, dialogue was stilted, and overall it felt cheap and uninspired. I watched season two only because my recorder box recorded it, largely because I'd forgotten to remove the series link. Imagine my surprise. The show has essentially revamped itself, retooled its original premise, always a risky proposition, and morphed into a young adult version of Star Trek. Some characters have been jettisoned, others have been given new roles, and the cast, Jax, played by Priscilla Quintata, and Xander Duval, played by Oliver Dench, are now working on the spaceship Dauntless, with Jax now working closely with the Earth Intelligence Services on secret missions to capture her sister, another Pandora, and find her long-thought-dead but not really mother. Xander has been promoted to Captain of the Dauntless, which allows us to spend a lot more time in space and visiting planets in an original Star Trek-type way. It's pulpy grade B science fiction, but I like pulpy grade B science fiction, so I don't consider that a down vote. 
Sometimes the show was its Trekkian influence far too obviously, with a number of lines of dialogue being quoted verbatim from the original Star Trek, and the premise of Season 2, a planet-killing antimatter weapon, being suspiciously like the Doomsday Machine. But the characters are gelling better this year, the stories are more interesting, yes, we did spot the shameless take on Logan's Run in Episode 2, and the effects look better as well. Being shot in Bulgaria means it looks new and interesting. Let's be honest, I think we've all seen enough Californian locations doubling as alien planets to last a lifetime. Pandora probably isn't going to win any awards, but its game, young cast seem invested in having fun, and the show seems to have settled into a nice groove. No one was more shocked than me that this didn't suck, but if you're of a notion, give it a go. You can jump right into Season 2 and not really miss anything. From the pulpy to the hardcore. Amazon's The Expanse, based upon the novels of James S. A. Corey, is the polar opposite of Pandora. The Expanse eschews pulp for proper hard sci-fi, exploring how mankind may even evolve differently after years of mining and living in space. Attention is paid to how man would even operate on a spaceship. Proper scientific detail is adhered to, and there are many different plot threads and characters to keep up with. If Pandora is a B-movie flick transplanted to TV, then The Expanse is an A all the way. The level of detail, the characterization, the demands on the viewers to pay attention, and the unfolding world-building are all exemplary, and seemingly much underrated. Initially a Sci-Fi Channel original as well, the series moved over to Amazon after being cancelled, presumably for being too Sci-Fi for the Sci-Fi Channel. This then allowed the show more room to grow and develop. The Expanse takes its time, it's what we would call deliberately paced, but it's a show that rewards patience and a couple of episodes in, it's easy to get hooked. It's not an easy viewing experience by any means. Look at your phone for a few minutes and you'll find yourself lost, but if you've got the time to truly get invested, The Expanse is one of the best science fiction TV shows ever made. Over on Disney+, Plus, WandaVision continues to soar to new heights with every episode. After opening with a premise that sounded fun but limited, each episode was to be a pastiche of a different era of US sitcom, the series has developed wonderfully into a prime example of the Marvel brand of storytelling, mixing quite thoughtful mediations on death, grieving and loss in with the usual Marvel comic-style hijinks and fun. Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany continue to shine as the Scarlet Witch and the Vision respectively, but are supported by a great cast of recurring actors. Some, like Kat Dennings and Randall Park, are familiar from the MCU. Others are old characters, but with new actors in the role. The now 30-something Monica Rambeau, last seen as a child in Captain Marvel, is now played by Tayona Paris. And others still, such as the wonderful Catherine Hahn, are new to the universe, but may be important going forward. Some commentators, spoiled by the Netflix binge approach, whined that WandaVision wasn't moving fast enough. But this, surprisingly, is designed as a weekly TV show. Each episode is specifically structured to be watched that way, with developments and story points rising and falling with the standard 30 minutes or so length. It's also kept the show fresh, with people eager to see the next episode when it drops on Friday, leading to some assholes spoiling the show instantly on social media, because people have no sense of decorum anymore. The weekly release also means that it doesn't suffer from Netflix bloat, Episodes have fluctuating runtime, so there's none of the slow-moving tedium that plagued the Netflix Marvel series, with each episode having to be an hour and each season had to be 13 episodes. 
WandaVision moves much faster than Luke Cage or Iron Fist, and is all the better for it. It was also nice to see new Marvel content after a year off due to COVID. In fact, in many ways, the year off may have helped. The Marvel brand remains untarnished, and we can only hope the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and whatever comes next, continues to be this entertaining. The other big surprise has been Resident Alien, starring Alan Tudyuk. A sci-fi channel original and based upon the Dark Horse comic book by Peter Hogan and Steve Parkhouse, Resident Alien has a familiar premise. An alien invader crash lands on Earth, takes the form of a human, and then, his ship destroyed and with no way to contact home, he must live amongst us. In this case, as a doctor, he killed when he landed. With little knowledge of humanity, let alone human physiognomy, he's pressed ganged into service when the town doctor is killed, and he's forced to work with these bizarre humans. It's a little off that we are supposed to root for a murderer. Literally, the first thing Tudyuk does is kill a man and take his form. However, he is technically a conqueror, and that's what conquering nations do. Three episodes in, though, it's Tudyuk that makes the series work, portraying the most convincing alien visitor to Earth since Jeff Bridges wooed Karen Allen in 1984's Starman. The main difference is Starman was benevolent, whereas Tudyuk's character, Hari, is anything but... It's dumb luck that he killed a doctor who was taking a little time off in his cabin in the remote Colorado town where he's crashed, just as the local town needs a doctor. But if they didn't, we don't have a show. And let's be honest, stories have hinged on bigger coincidences. The sporting cast are also interesting. A ragtag collection of local oddballs, misfits and northern exposure cast-offs who nevertheless bring a lot to the show and give Tudyuk ample to play off. Resident Alien has been a pleasant surprise. A character-based science fiction comedy series is a heady brew, and all concerned capture the tone just so, making Resident Alien genuinely entertaining, with a rich vein of dark humour that the show doesn't shy away from. The executive producer and director of many episodes is Star Trek Voyager's Robert Duncan McNeil, who performed the same task on Chuck, and Resident Alien boasts excellent location filming, a great cast and witty moments that make it stand out. I don't know how long they can keep this fresh, but I'm here for as long as they do. The CW continues to churn out its Arrowverse shows. I confess, every year I say I'll watch them and every year I fall behind, generally catching the first three or four episodes and the season finale. Supergirl ends this year after an impressive six-season run following Arrow's demise last year, but Legends of Tomorrow continues to be my favourite, a delightful confection, offering up a generally funnier tone and offbeat collection of characters that works well within the confines of what is, honestly, a ridiculous show. I've only seen a few episodes of Black Lightning and Batwoman, and I lost interest in The Flash when it became readily apparent that Barry Allen is completely unable to think for himself, relying far too much on his ever-expanding support group and overall offering up a rather samey feel for the five years I stuck with it. Still, it's been renewed for an eighth season, so Grant Gustin presumably got that pay hike he was holding out for. This season, though, we'll see a new series added to the roster, Superman and Lois, a new take on the Superman legend, with Tyler Hoechlin taking on the dual role of Clark Kent Superman and Elizabeth Tulloch as Lois Lane. Both characters and actors have appeared in episodes of the other Arrow shows prior to being given their own show, and hopefully this will end up being neither as campy as Lois and Clark, nor as drawn out as Smallville. Invoking Smallville is apt, 
having managed to see a sneak preview of the pilot episode for Superman and Lois, the show feels very much like Smallville 15 years later. That's not a bad thing. Assuming the regular premise for a Superman show, Superman and Lois just accepts that the Man of Steel has been around for 20 years. He's an established part of the world and well-liked by the populace. He's married to Lois, who knows his secret, and they have two boys, who don't. It was a tad distracting that one of the boys is the spitting image of Frodo Baggins. I will now be talking about the pilot, so if you haven't seen it, turn off here. Still listening? That's on you then. The opening scene of what we assume is Superman's first appearance, or one of his first at any rate, sees Superman in his Golden Age costume, the second appearance of such in a CW show after Brandon Ralph wore it in the Crisis crossover episodes. It looks much better than the actual costume the series went with, which is more in line with the newer New 52 design, which always looked a bit off to me. The red belt just doesn't look right, and without the trunks there's nothing to break up the costume. Too much blue, I think, is the criticism. That minor niggle out of the way, the, the pilot was pretty solid. Yes, there's a ton of fannish Easter eggs if that's your bag, but they don't make a show. Easter eggs, they're cute and cuddly, but they don't make the show good. Star Trek Lower Decks has more Easter eggs than Sainsbury's, and the show still isn't funny. What makes a show is the tone, the direction, the stories and the character, and in this respect, all four seem pretty much on point, and thus Superman and Lois seems to be onto a winner. Tyler Hoechlin is a pretty good Clark and Superman. This is important, as not every actor who has played the role is good at both. He's obviously in shape, but also he's not a tank. This is also important. How is Clark supposed to blend in if he's six foot tall and five feet wide? Elizabeth Tulloch is underused, but she seems to be a very capable Lois and a nice addition to the pantheon of actors who portrayed her. I also like that they kept the dynamic of Lois being slightly older than Clark. There are a few problems with some of the writing. Again, we see a US fiction focused on daddy issues. The kids, Jordan and Jonathan, are all about Clark and Clark's relationship with them when Lois is stood right there. If you can't talk to dad, that's what mum is for, and vice versa. It's why parenting is a partnership. Some of the symbolism was laid on pretty thick as well. Fireworks exploding when Jordan kisses a girl, and Superman's fall from grace intercut with Jordan's emergence as a super being. These shots were quite on the nose, but overall these are minor nitpicks, as the show gets an awful lot right. Superman is confident and capable and well-liked, whilst Clark is allowed to be hesitant and unsure of how to deal with certain things. Moving them all back to Smallville makes for a nice change, and lends itself further to the feeling that this is a sequel to that series. Even better, the pilot made no mention of the other CW shows, something I hope remains the case. Each series needs to stand alone, and I'd be fine without seeing Grant Gustin show up, although I can't imagine the producers will be able to resist. The character dynamics are well explored, although, once again, representation for the ginger people is discarded, with yet another brunette Lana. What is it with the CW and their prejudice against the Auburn race? Overall, though, the pilot episode, entitled originally Pilot, was solid. I didn't look at my watch once, a rarity with the CW show, and the balance between the teens and the adults will hopefully not become one-sided, as it did in shows like Dawson's Creek, The O.C. and Buffy, as it moves along. 
based upon this one 60-minute pilot, Superman and Lois is off to a flying start. So there we go. I hope Rutledge would approve. A recommended watching list of genre telly, all new and currently available to watch, if you have the right streaming companies, of course. Nostalgia is fun, and we'll always have our favourites to revisit, but checking out some new stuff may surprise you. If nothing else, it'll hopefully show you that whilst nostalgia may be a mysterious thing, the present is always exciting, and the future worth looking forward to. It's email reading time. I don't know that I'd do that as well as Michael Bailey. Why do we clutch pearls? Ask Alice to your hands. I don't know, Alex. Why do you? Hello, Andrew. It is a joy to be caught up, and I agree with you about comics crossovers. I know that they are the unique and special thing about comics, but they make catching up hard if you're a completionist. Something you said struck me as worth responding to. Ooh, controversy alert. Before I begin, I want to make a couple of things clear. One, nothing I am about to say is intended as an attack. Two, I respect the perspective you outlined in the episode. The actor is not the character, so you don't judge the character for the actions of the actor. I am, however, a pearl clutcher, as you term it, and in general on the side of pearl clutchers, so I thought I'd give an explanation. There are two issues here. My own personal reasons for finding it hard to like the original Kirk, given the actor, and two, whilst liking media created by problematic creators, is hard. Well, this is a very timely issue, isn't it? Because in case you've not been paying attention to the continued fallout um, regarding the Justice League reshoots and editing and all that bump, um, numerous Buffy alumni, including Sarah Michelle Geller, Charisma Carpenter, Michelle Trachtenberg, Amber Benson and Emma Caulfield have all spoke out that it was a somewhat abusive and problematic set and that comes from the top, Joss Whedon. So you do have a situation here where you now have a problematic creator who has created something that I very much enjoyed in the case of Buffy, Angel and Firefly. Not so much Dollhouse, which I always thought was a bit dubious, but uh, it did have Eliza Dushku in, so, you know, whatever. Um, so let's let's continue with Alex's email and see where this takes us. I've addressed my thoughts concerning Shatner before, but I'll restate it here in case for clarity. I am autistic, and Shatner represents a charity, Autism Speaks, that is actively harmful to autistic people as far as actual autistic people are concerned. Shatner only has the power and influence to lend to this harmful organisation because of his role as Captain Kirk in Star Trek. I thus find it hard to separate actor and character when the actor is being actively harmful to people like me because of the success of the character. Okay, let's take this on board first of all. I am not speaking for whatever William Shatner has said. I don't generally have a problem with an actor using his platform to talk about something unless it is being harmful as you say in this case. But ultimately, as you've pointed out when you said that you like Star Trek VI and finally understood who the character was, the character isn't the actor. The character isn't saying the words that the actor is. So you, you, can, you do have to split it up in your head. 
there is a very complex issue at heart here, Alex, and we're not going to solve it in a in a, a situation like this where you're writing and I'm responding. It's 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 too complex to respond to in that issue. Ultimately, the decision is it's ultimately down to you, really. If you can't watch Joss Whedon shows, if you can't watch Woody Allen movies or Roman Polanski movies or Brian Singer movies, that's your decision. No one's going to think any less of you. And if you can completely divorce who the artist is from the work they're putting out, though, likewise, I hope no one judges anyone for that either. I mean, I get what people say, that the artist does put themselves into the work, but ultimately, you can you can argue a case that the work stands on its own two feet. And as I've said many, many times before, which I, I freely rip off from film critic Mark Kermode, the last person to ask what the art is about is the artist. Because, just to keep it on Shatner for a second, I don't think Shatner really understands why Star Trek works. And I don't think he understands the character of Captain Kirk as well as he thinks he does. So... You know, it's it's very easy for me to divorce actor from character um, in that particular case. See, this isn't something we are actively disagreeing with each other about. We're, we're roughly on the same page. Thank you for emailing in, Alex. Uh, J. David Wheater has also emailed in. Andrew, I really enjoy your Spider-Man episodes. They are audio comfort food. Well, they're certainly not controversial, let's put it that way. It was fun to hear you talk about the geography of New York City and the Marvel Universe, because that is a passion of mine. I'm behind because I normally listen to podcasts on my drive to work, which doesn't exist when I work from home, so I just got your ranking of the Spider-Man movies. If Into the Spider-Verse hadn't been your number one, I think our friendship would suffer. Spider-Verse managed to eschew the standard Spidey mythos and yet get to the core of the concept in a way that none of the live-action films had. The entire film was art from beginning to end, and there are scenes that will make me tear up no matter how many times I watch the movie. It was so good that I went from a Spider-Gwen hater to a full-fledged fan of the character. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. I, I liked Spider-Gwen in that film as well, despite never getting on with her in the comics. In other feedback, I hope that we can get another daily sequence of episodes in the upcoming year. That week was a real treat in my book. The email is running long, so I will sign off. Keep up the Lord's work at the palace. Your friend, J. David Wheater. I like to think that the Lord supports what I'm doing here. I'd like to think that anyone supports what I'm doing here, and I'd like to think that they gave me money for doing so, but alas... That is not the case. Uh, that's it. That'll do it for now. That was the email section. That was the show. A little bit different than normal, but by and large, I like to do a little bit different every now and again. Podcasting should be different. It should evolve. It should change. It should grow like us as people. We should develop. We should change. We should grow. We should change our opinion. We should look at what's going on in the world and possibly reflect on what it would be like to walk in somebody else's shoes for a while. You know, maybe the world would be a nicer place if we did that more often. Anyway, that about wraps it up for God. As Douglas Adams once said, Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com is where you can reach me. And I'll see you all next time. Goodbye. <laughs>